0: Well, good morning, I've been waiting a long time to say this, but turn your Bible to the Book of John, the Gospel of John. Thank you, Adam, musicians, choir, for leading us the the ministry of the Word through song. We continue in our time of worship, the ministry of the Word through preaching of the Word. John chapter one, verse one. Jesus' most intimate disciple, writing towards the end of his life, more importantly, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes these words: "In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God." And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Let's pray. Father, we desire, as we just sang, to behold our God through the incarnate Word of God, and by the Spirit of God. And we ask that we might do that through the preaching of this Word of God this morning. And we ask this morning that by your Spirit and through this Word you would revive our souls, make wise the simple, rejoice our hearts and enlighten our spiritual eyes that we might behold our God. And we ask this in Jesus' name, the word of God, amen. The true story of the world given in scripture, it concerns the Lord's calling, his redeeming, and his perfecting of the people of God. The rest of history is simply a stage that God erects for that purpose. We need to keep that in mind. That's the purpose of history. However, the culture's portrayal of the way things are deceives us into other accounts of what's really going on. False ideologies, just turn on the television, whether it be movies, Shows are news programs, false ideologies and stories that hijacked us and and govern and guide our lives. So we may think that we're engaged in the real world, but in fact, we're caught up in what C.S. Lewis called the shadowlands. What are the shadowlands? The shadowlands are are a dark place, a place shaded by false narratives, false stories. And a central story today that is false is the relativizing of all meaning and truth to personal taste. Have you noticed that? The relativizing of all meaning and truth to personal taste. These are God replacement stories that appear stunning and, and satisfying and, and significant. But they are built on sinking sand and have very short termination dates. Broken cisterns that hold no water. C.S. Lewis illustrates this in his book, The, the Silver Chair. And so in The Silver Chair, you have this frog-like creature with human-like qualities whose name is Puddleglum. And he, along with Two young children, Jill and Eustace, seek to find the lost prince of Narnia. Along the way, they, they are encountered by the, the Queen of Underland. And the Queen of Underland holds them kind of captive in, in her underground cave. And, and she creates conditions conducive to, to sleepiness. She uses soft music and, and dim lights and a pleasant smell, and then she lies to them. She weaves in false stories about the world. Here's what she says, there is no land called Narnia. There never was any world but mine. Suddenly, Pologlum stamps his feet in the fire and it wakes him up, it it sobers him, Uh, it rouses him, It, it clears his head he's all of a sudden alert to the witch's deception of substituting her artificial world for the real world. The real world and beautiful world of Narnia. Analogously, this is one of the central purposes of the word of God. It's why we must be in the word daily and certainly corporately. And it's certainly one of the purposes of John's gospel to sober us, to alert us to the cultural subversion going on in our world and to the real world, the real history centered on the revelation of God in the Word of God, that is, the Son of God. And John writes so that we would believe that. Indeed, the purpose of John, he tells us at the end of the book, He says in John 20, verse 31, these are written, everything he writes, the the accounts that he writes in his gospel are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Which means every passage, every story in this gospel is written so that you and I might believe. You say, well, I already believe. Well, remember, belief is like a muscle. It can be developed. And so this is a word for every Christian here, so that we might believe more. And it's also a word to every unbeliever here, that you might uh, have new faith, new belief, in the Son of God. That's why he writes this Gospel. Now, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the Gospel of John gives us an account, a perfect, inerrant, infallible account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Matthew and Luke begin with Jesus' birth. Outside of Matthew's genealogy, he goes straight to Jesus' birth. Mark jumps straight to Mark 1:9. Jesus came. And, of course, the incarnation um, is certainly contained in that glorious phrase, Jesus came. John begins a little differently. He's not contradicting the other Gospels. Uh, we need all four Gospels to give us a full, comprehensive, composite account of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But Jesus, or John begins by showing the Son of God embarking on a journey... Not from Galilee to Jerusalem, but from existing eternally with the Father to becoming a human. As we saw last week, this is and was an infinite journey. And so we start in John, in eternity past, and we'll arrive next week in verse 6, in Palestine, around 27... 29 AD. That brings us to the first part of this gospel. And we see right out of the shoot, the Word and God, verses 1 and 2. Look with me in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Now, this sentence more than any other sentence in the Bible is foundational for the church's confession of the doctrine of the Trinity. That is, God is tri-unity. God is one, God is three. One in nature, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the most foundational verse as we understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And could there be a more profound beginning to a book than John 1.1? It's simply a beautiful mountain peak verse. It begins on the top of a mountain, doesn't it? And the first step on this mountain is found in these words, In the beginning was the word. Now, We've been studying Genesis at night, and uh, every believer here recognizes that he's echoing Genesis 1. Uh, but notice, um, in, the, in echo, uh, Genesis 1 is, in the beginning, God. And here, he writes, in the beginning was the Word. And so, in the creation account, we read 10 times, and God said. John is telling us, That word that was spoken by God, Elohim, is a person. Of course, John is writing in a post-fall context. After Genesis 3, all things are marred by sin. All things come under the curse of sin and death. And so John is signaling in these words that the one who created all things has come to recreate all things. He has come to make all things new. But this verse line also signals to us that this Word isn't to be included among created things. Again, in the beginning was the Word. Uh, The Word existed before creation. In eternity past with, with God. That means... Really, that in the beginning, John takes um, this passage here and he places it before in the beginning of Genesis. So even before in the beginning of Genesis, in the beginning was the Word. Now what does that tell us? Tells us a great deal. Uh, This puts the Word of God in a unique way category as the only person who ever lived before he was born. Uh, The son shares here in the father's eternity. He's existed with the father before creation. In fact, the night before uh, Jesus's cross, That very evening, he would be arrested. He's praying that high priestly prayer. And in John 17, verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so this son is equal in essence and glory with, with God. Now, the word here, many of you know this, the word in Greek for word is the word logos. It was a philosophically rich word. It was a philosophically loaded word in that day. In fact, John will use this word 40 times in his gospel. Uh, It's one of the most important terms in Greek philosophy. Now, John ministered in Ephesus, and and so his audience likely was vaguely familiar with the use of the term in uh, the philosophical discussions of the day. But with that said, there's one factor that's most significant for understanding what John meant by identifying the Son of God with the Logos, and that is the use of the word in the Old Testament, all right? So all through the Old Testament, the word accomplishes God's will. God's will is always accomplished by the word of God. Think about this passage from Isaiah 55. It's one of my favorite passages on the Word of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it spring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word goes out and accomplishes God's good purposes. It gives seed to the sower. It gives bread to the eater. It purposes God's good will. Or fulfills God's good purposes for his will. And we see this at the very beginning of Genesis 1. And God said, and it was so. Uh, We see it in Psalm 119, for instance, when several times the psalmist says, Give me life according to your word. And then in Psalm 107, one of my favorite passages on the word of God, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them. God accomplishes his purposes through his word. But John is going to go further in his identity Of this word. As he identifies this word, he says the word was with God. In other words, the word who became a man, which we celebrate at Advent, is no mere personification of God, but a person who existed from all eternity with God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God's ultimate self-disclosure and john in fact will designate jesus the son of god as the word of god four times in his writings in other words the word of god is distinguishable from the father and yet this word was god so keep this in mind with and was the word was god and the word was with god What does that tell us? Co equal, yet distinct. Distinct, but co equal. And this clearly defends against the heresy that has never gone away called Arianism. Maybe you're familiar with that, but there was a man named Arius who denied Jesus' divinity and contended that he was brought forth by the word, or by by God the Father, out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Uh, This heresy was so dangerous that it was behind the first church council in Nicaea in 325 A.D. The Nicene Council. Now, prior to Dan Brown's 2003 best-selling book, The Da Vinci Code, most people in the West had never heard of the Council of Nicaea. Unfortunately, this heretical book, and that's what it is, it sold 80 million copies, in fact, in 44 languages. It makes the argument that Jesus Christ was never depicted as the Son of God by the church until Nicaea. It was a political move in 325 A.D., Uh, Chapter 55 of that book fills us in. Um, There is this historian, this royal British historian named Tebing. And he is enlightening uh, the character Sophie. And here's what he says. Constantine, who was the emperor, needed to strengthen the new Christian tradition and held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. Until that moment in history... Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. Sophie, apparently stunned at this revelation, stammers, not the son of God, to which Teebling replies, right. Jesus' establishment as the son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the council of Nicaea. Now, Sophie is flabbergasted. Hold on. You're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? Then Brown, Dan Brown, has his character put the exclamation point on what he said here, a relatively close vote at that. Now, you think about this. 80 million people reading this book in 44 languages, and they're reading this going, wow, I did not know this about Jesus. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, Um, It wasn't a close vote. Um, We don't know exactly how many pastors were at the uh, Council of Nicaea. Uh, They estimate somewhere between 220 and 318 pastors. One interesting side note, uh, there was a church historian, perhaps the first church historian, who was present there. His name was Eusebius. And we can read this in his writings. He said that in that group of men... At this council, remember, this was taking place during the great persecution, when to be a Christian was very dangerous. He said, you could look in that room, and most of the men had visible scars from having been beaten and persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. But there were somewhere between 220 and 318 men. We don't know exactly, but we do know how many denied Christ as the Son of God at that council two two of Arius's followers the others were there willing to die on their faith for their faith in Jesus Christ as the son of god but the second and the biggest problem with dan brown's account is that the word of god from genesis to revelation affirms the deity of jesus christ the son of god in fact because john 1 verse 1, states so clearly that Jesus Christ is God, it has long been under attack. In fact, Eris' argument that he was the highest of created beings, it's used today by such groups as the Jehovah's Witnesses. So much so that when you see uh, a Jehovah's Witness lips moving, you can hear the hiss Of Arius himself. Now, their argument is based on the the notion, and and this is is a true statement that they make, they're just interpreting it wrongly, that John places the word the, that is a definite article, uh, before the word word in verse one, but not before God. Notice, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. And so literally, they translate this, the word was a God, but not the God. Because there's no definite article before the word God. So how do we respond to that? And why do I spend time on this? Because they're going to knock on your door. And because we are called to love them as image bearers with the gospel. We are called to engage them, we have to be prepared to engage them because they need Jesus just like you and I need Jesus. So how do we respond to their argument? Well, first of all, it's clear from verse three, verse 18 and other places in, in the Gospel of John. So for instance, John 20 verse 28 where Thomas declares Jesus my Lord and my God, that John identifies Jesus as God. In fact, in 1 John 5, he will say he is the true God and eternal life. Second, John was a monotheistic Jew. That is, he believed in the one God, spelled out in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That would have been John's confession. He would have hardly referred to a mere person as a God. Third, the word God in the New Testament, uh, refers to God in the fullest sense without a definite article all the time. In fact, three other times in John 1 alone. Notice in verse 6, there was a man sent from God. There's no definite article there. Notice in verse 13, Born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is no definite article there. How about verse 18? No one has ever seen God. There's no definite article there. Fourth, if John had written the Word was the God, that would have identified Jesus with God in a way that would have made the persons in the Godhead indistinguishable. There is distinction in the Godhead. And that's why he writes the way he does. Fifth, if John meant that Jesus was a great creature and God-like, but not deity, there was a better word to use. The Greek word, and I've got it on the board here, theos. But he didn't use that word. that word. That word means God-like. He uses the word theos, which means God. But to drive home this distinction in the Godhead, he adds in verse 2, he, that is the word of God, was in the beginning with God, in the beginning with God. Literally, The Word was face-to-face with God. That's how you would translate that literally. Face-to-face with God. So nothing new is added in verse 2, but two points are repeated. He was in the beginning, and he was with God. In other words, the Father and the Word are not the same but they belong together. They are distinct, but enjoy perfect harmony. Now, now some would deny that there are distinct persons in the Godhead. Instead, they see the Father and the Son as different modes of the one undifferentiated God. So we've already talked about Arianism. We need to be aware of these heresies. Another heresy that is prevalent is a heresy called modalism. Is that a new term for you? Well, it's probably the most common heresy in the West today. But notice, in in modalism, it teaches that the father becomes the son who then becomes the spirit. Three different modes successively, not simultaneously. Uh, but here's the deal. Here's what John is saying. While a person can be by himself, he can never be with himself. Verse two says, he was with God. Verse one, he was with God. And in the beginning, he was with God. And that's a very important point that he makes. Now, not to pick on novels, which I seem to be doing today. But there is another novel, a best-selling novel, that commits this heresy. It's the her- a novel called The Shack. Um, in fact, it's so bad that uh, an autobiography on Shaquille O'Neal would be better theologically uh, for, for the people of God. Amen. But in The Shack, the three persons of the, the Trinity speak themselves into human existence as the Son of God. Also in that book, when God the Father and God the Spirit, they they show their scars from the wounds that Jesus received on the cross. And so there's essentially just three modes of the same undifferentiated God. And and I would submit this is the most common heresy uh, in the Western church today. So, you'll hear somebody pray, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. The Father didn't die. There are three persons in the Godhead. And I want you to note this if the Son of God is not a real person who can stand before the Father and address him, we have no advocate. There is no substitute, there is no satisfaction for sin. We have one who has gone before us as our great advocate. And all we have to do is consider the baptism of Jesus. When when you see clearly the Trinitarian pronouncement on him, you see it at the Garden of Gethsemane as well. Uh, We realize in these accounts that the Bible requires the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each to be present and subsisting at the same time. So equality yet distinction, keep that in mind. Equality yet distinction, that's verses 1 and 2 in a nutshell. And that prepares us for verse 3, the final verse of our passage. We've seen the Word and God, and in verse 3 we see the Word and creation. John writes, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything owes its existence to the Word of God. But there is a cl- cl- careful dif- differentiation uh, of the parts played by the Father and the Son. The Father created, but he did it through the Word. All three persons, in fact, of the Godhead are involved in creation. Each just has uh, unique roles. And and so when John here writes, without him was not anything made that was made, he's asserting that God the Father, through the Son, is responsible for all that is made. Everything. Remarkably, in the Jewish worldview, one thing that distinguished God from all the other false gods was that he was the sole creator of all things. So think about... Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord. That is, I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself. So here in this passage, it is Yahweh who is the creator of all things. And John is writing, the Son of God, the Word of God, is the creator of all things. And and the fact that he is the creator of all things is the ground of every believer's hope, the ground of every believer's help. Think of these words in Psalm 146, verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So here he is he is, he is thinking on the God of Jacob, the God who is our hope, the Yahweh, Yahweh who is our hope. And then he goes on and says, who made heaven and earth, the seas, and that is all that is in them. Now think about that. John just wrote that the Son of God created all things. And here, Isaiah says, It is the God of Jacob, it is Yahweh who created all things. It is the God of Jacob who is our help, who is our hope. And John says, that's the Son of God. But here's the issue, as we come to a close. No spiritually blind person, and we are, that's who we are naturally, 2 Corinthians 4. No spiritually blind person, no spiritually dead person, that's who we are naturally naturally, Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. No spiritually blind person, no spiritually dead person can see and savor God in Jesus Christ as our Creator. Not naturally, not without the sin covering, wrath absorbing, spiritual. I-giving purchase of Jesus, the Son of God, in his cross and in his resurrection from the grave. But that's the good news of Advent. That's the good news of Christ first appearing. It's why the word of God came. He came for us and our salvation. As the Lord... Of a new creation. That's what John is signaling in the beginning of his prologue. Indeed, every passage in John is intended in some way to show us why we need a Messiah. But why we need a Messiah who has to be crucified and raised from the grave. We're going to see that throughout the Gospel of John. We need one who's more than an example to follow. We need a Christ. We need a Savior. You need a Savior who is crucified and raised from the grave, who takes the wrath of God in his crucifixion and is raised from the grave, issuing in a new creation. And this passage is no exception to that. Let me close with these words from J.C. Ryle. Um, I have them on the board And I can't say them any more eloquently than J.C. Ryle. So we'll just read Ryle and close. Would we know for one thing, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, let us often read these verses. He's talking about John 1. Let us mark what kind of being the redeemer of mankind must needs be in order to provide eternal redemption for sinners. If no one less than the eternal God, the creator and preserver of all things, could take away the sin of the world, sin must be a far more abominable thing in the sight of God than most men suppose. Do you see his point there? If it took the, the eternal God to take away our sins, then our sin must much, much, uh, be much more horrific than anything we could ever fathom. If Christ is so great, then sin must indeed be sinful. But let us mark that the Savior is one able to save to the uttermost all that come to the Father by him. He's able to save because he's God of very God. He that was with God and was God is also Emmanuel, God with us, that he might deliver us from the shadowlands. That he might deliver us from the shadowlands. Most of us have been delivered and are being delivered daily from the shadowlands through the all-sufficient work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so John writes this so that you would believe more and more in the Son of God and that faith becomes your muscle by which you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and in your attachment, your detachment from the world. But there's some here today that are still in the shadowlands, and you don't even know it because a, wet, a fish doesn't know it's wet. You're in the shadowlands, and you've believed, you've believed a false narrative. You've believed a false story, a social imaginary, as some scholars call it. And, and you believe that that's the real story. That is the real world. And John is writing to you. The real world was created by the agency of the Son of God. But you need to be redeemed for that real world. And the Bible says you can be. That's why Christ came. He came to redeem sinners. We've already sung about it. And we hear about it in the Word of God. And so as the musicians come forward, I want to share with you how you can experience that redemption from the Shadowlands, which is ruled by sin and death. You you first of all have to recognize that God created you and he stands over you. He has all authority over you. Uh, That's one of the implications of the doctrine of creation. That's why many don't like the doctrine of creation because of its implications. This God stands over you as ruler and has all authority over you. But in your natural state, you're in rebellion to him. Um, You are not subject to him. Uh, You follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. And yet this God, by his mercy, by his grace, His compassion, his wisdom, his power has made a way for you to be delivered from your sin, for you to be delivered from the shadowlands. If you will confess Jesus Christ as Lord, if you will confess Jesus Christ died on the cross to set me free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, and you will repent of your sins, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven, and you'll be ushered into a new world, um, the world of the kingdom of God. All you have to do is confess and believe. And we wanna give you an opportunity as we stand and as we sing. We'll have pastors here at the end of the aisles. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we wanna start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.